Glad to see you guys here this morning. I had a sermon that I was going to preach today, but I'm just kidding. That was blank paper. I just wanted to, just wanted to see what you would do. <clears throat> Thought of that last night, how enjoyable that would be just to see a reaction. So, uh, you guys are pretty cool. Good job. <laughs> No gasps. So, um, before we start the actual sermon today, um, how about we pray together and then we'll open the Word. Father, we do thank You so much for Your kindness and patience, how You have just been uh, so gracious and loving and merciful toward us. We are sinners. We are undeserving of anything that you would grant us as a gift, and you have freely given us all things in Christ. What an amazing thought. God, we thank you, and we love you because you first loved us through the gospel. Lord, I ask that today as we examine your word, as we study scripture to see what it is that you have said, that we would understand more about the rest that we get through the gospel that we would understand more profoundly what Jesus gives us through faith, and that we would have a better understanding of how we are to live as complicated physiological beings, how we are to get our rest for your glory. Lord, I ask that though I am a sinner both by nature and by choice, that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your word would be so clear to your people today. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going back to the book of Deuteronomy. You couldn't get rid of it that easily. Deuteronomy chapter 3. We're going to go back and start there today. Deuteronomy chapter 3. And I want us to see today a connection between faith and rest. There's a connection between trusting and receiving rest. If you haven't noticed it in your life, it seems to be true that work just breeds work. That the more you work, the more there is to do. The more you get done, the more that there is. And as you work, you just get more and more work. And yet what we see in Scripture is when we cease from working, when we trust and have faith, that actually breeds rest. Work breeds more work, but faith breeds rest. And when I say rest today, what I'm talking about is completely ceasing from something. If you're going to rest from something, you are going to totally stop, to completely cease. That's what I mean by rest. And last week, we looked in God's Word and saw how God's rest on the seventh day was a pattern given to man, a gift given to man, that God being God, He never needs to rest like we need to rest, but He rested from his labors as a pattern for us. And we saw last week in the book of Exodus that the Sabbath was a symbol of trust in Israel, that as God rained down manna, he gave them a double portion on Saturday, or on Friday rather, that on Saturday, the Sabbath, they were to not go out and work and hunt, but they were to relax and rest for the glory of God. For them to do that, they had to trust God at his word. They had to believe God. The Sabbath in Israel was a symbol of trust. And we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today, as Mike mentioned earlier, but before we 
we get there, we need to see some Old Testament themes of rest as a backdrop. Hebrews 4 is going to make a lot more sense to you if we can understand certain themes in the Old Testament first. And so the first thing I want you to see, starting with the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 3, is that the promised land, which you guys should be really familiar with this, right? We just got done with the series on Deuteronomy. So remember, promised land and the Exodus generation and their kids are the promised land generation. I hope it's all in your head still. The promised land was always tied to inheritance and rest, and it was always tied to those things by faith. The promised land was always about inheritance and rest by faith. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 3, Deuteronomy 3, starting at verse 18. It says, Moses speaking to the Reubenites and Gadites here, he says, Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. But your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities which I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. The Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh didn't go into the promised land. Remember, they wanted to stay on the outside. They liked the land that they had. And Moses is here imploring for them to go in and to do battle because God is going to, through their efforts, God is going to, verse 20, give rest to those fellow countrymen. The promised land was there as a place of rest. Same book, chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. Same theme, the promised land tied to inheritance and rest by faith. Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, Moses said, You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, then He gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for His name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. The land... On the other side of the Jordan is given as an inheritance, it says, the land for you to inherit and the land where you will get rest from all your enemies. Israel was promised rest from the enemy in this land. Now, of course, this was what was promised to that generation that God rescued out of Egypt. What what were they doing when God parted the Red Sea and he, He took them out of Egypt? Where were they going? Well, of course, they were going to the promised land. They were going to inherit the land. And so they sent 12 spies to the land. Even though God said He was giving it to them, they still sent spies. And 10 of them came back and said, I don't think we want any part of that, guys. Uh, Those guys are big. They make us look like grasshoppers. Big old fellas down there, tall drinks of water. We don't want to go down there. They didn't have any faith. So did they get rest? No. Did they get an inheritance? No. What did they get instead? Forty years in the wilderness. 
Can anything illustrate unrest better than wandering aimlessly for 40 years? See, it was all about faith. They had to have faith, and they would receive that rest and that inheritance. So their children went into the promised land. The next generation went. And if you turn to the next book of your Bible, Joshua, right after the book of Deuteronomy, go to the book of Joshua, find chapter 22. Chapter 22, we hear about this generation, the promised land generation, who actually went in and took possession of, the, of that real estate that God gave them. Look at Joshua 22, verse 4. Joshua chapter 22, verse 4. It says, Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as He spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave beyond the Jordan. After the defeating of the enemies, they, they divvied up the land, and they received, it says in this verse, Joshua 22, 4, rest. They received rest. Look at Joshua 23, the very next chapter, first verse of that chapter. It came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies. And so this promise that God gave way back with, with Abraham, this promise is finally being realized in the history of Israel. You realize it's been centuries in their history. They were in Egypt for over 400 years. And now with this generation, they're finally in the land, they're finally getting a taste of rest. But did it last? Did it last? Okay, good job. You've read the Bible more than Joshua. That's good. You've read beyond Joshua. Uh, it did not last. They got a taste of it. But that promised land could only provide a temporary rest for those sinners. It could only be temporary. Because man is so fallen and so sinful and in a conditional covenant that says, obey these laws and then you can stay, it was never going to be a permanent fix. It was only going to be temporary. So now look with me at Psalm 95. We're making our way to Hebrews. Let's stop at Psalm 95. This is a fascinating development in Israel. That generation went into the land. It said they received rest. They had their feet in the inheritance of God. And it wasn't long until they lost it all. And Psalm 95, starting at verse 6, illustrates this situation. Psalm 95 and verse 6, it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly they shall not enter into my rest. You see what the psalm writer is doing here? He's drawing attention to that Exodus generation that had no faith, that sent the spies and said, we can't do it, and they didn't get that rest. God says, don't be like them in their hardness of their hearts. Don't be like that generation. But He says, look at verse 7, 
today. If you hear His voice today, have faith. Don't be hard-hearted and lacking faith like that generation. But if you hear His voice, have faith. And what does that mean if this is being written down hundreds of years later, after the Exodus generation, after that generation entered the promised land, their children? They're still saying today there's a promise of rest? There remains a promise today? Well, that's what the writer of Hebrews picks up on. And this is where we'll stop with all the flipping. Turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Verses 1 through 11. Israel was promised an inheritance. They were promised rest. A certain generation camped out in the land. They got there. They enjoyed rest, Joshua said. And then they lost it. And generations after them lost it. But there still remains a promise for rest. It's a fascinating Fascinating predicament. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, stop right there. That promise of rest, that was given to, all the way back in Abraham, to Abraham. But certainly to the Exodus generation, the ones who were brought out through the Red Sea, weren't they given a promise of rest in the promised land? But they didn't get it. It was their kids who got the promise of rest. Now fast forward over a millennium, 1,400 years just about, and now in the book of Hebrews, he's saying, fear, because there's a promise remaining of rest and you might come short of it. You're not Abraham. You're not the Exodus generation. You're not the promised land generation. What's he talking about? Verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly, formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You see, rest is far more than stopping work and stopping your recreational activities. 
Rest is spiritual here. This is about redemption in Hebrews chapter 4. This is about entering the rest of God through the gospel. That by being united to God by faith in Christ, you have a real, unchanging, eternal Sabbath. And you stop doing these works. Just as God rested from His, so do you rest from yours. True rest, it says in this passage, is attained by hearing good news and attaching faith to that good news. That's how we get rest. It says that those Israelites way back when, they had heard good news. And that good news wasn't the cross of Christ that hadn't happened yet. The good news they heard is that there's a land, there's a promise, there's an inheritance. But they didn't believe, they didn't have faith. It did them no good. And yet now we have good news preached to us, and it is the cross of Christ. And if we are united to that message by faith, we get our inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, a spiritual, eternal inheritance. We have a true rest that no man can take away. We have a peace in our souls as we stop from our works and we just relish in the works of Christ on our behalf that no one can take from us. We have a forever Sabbath because of Jesus Christ. It's a rest that's beyond all other rests. And what's happening in Hebrews chapter 4 is an amazing illustration with Jesus and the promised land. And it's an illustration. It's not a supersession. Jesus doesn't take the place of a land. Jesus is better than a land. And it's an amazing illustration of how we get rest today. But you might be thinking, so what does that mean then, practically speaking, if Jesus is our rest? Well, that sounds nice, but I'm tired, right? (laughs) That sounds good that Jesus is our Sabbath, but I feel like we should still take a Sabbath. What do we do with this Sabbath day stuff? What do we do with getting physical rest? Well, as we consider Jesus as our Sabbath, we must also consider the implications for all of this. Is there a Sabbath day for Christians? And that's what I want to talk about in the next, the next section. Is Sunday special? So if you're taking notes, follow along with me. Is, is Sunday a special day? Well, there's an author I, I really like reading. His name's Don Whitney. And Don Whitney has uh, categorized the three main Christian views of Sabbath and the Lord's Day. So I want to explain those to you, and then we can evaluate them. The first view is the Christian Sabbath, okay? That's the view, is that there is such a thing as a Christian Sabbath, meaning we are still to observe one day a week religiously. We're to observe Sunday now. It's changed to Sunday from Saturday, but we are to observe that day every week, truly, thoroughly, religiously. It's the new Sabbath day. And the historic creeds and confessions of the faith articulate it best. The Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession. In the Westminster, it says this, and you're going to have to, like, really try to listen, okay? There there are times when you don't have to try. This is one of those times you have to try, okay? So, be ready. Focus. This wasn't written in the last 300 years. It was before that, all right? As it is the law of nature that, in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, 
So, in His Word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, He has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, was the last day of the week, and, from the resurrection of Christ, was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. That was the Westminster Confession. The London Baptist Confession says this, The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. When men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words and thoughts, about their worldly employment and recreation, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of His worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. So, to sum up in modern vernacular, the Sabbath day moved from Saturday to Sunday, and on Sunday we should take a break from all of our regular duties, all of our routines. We should make preparations beforehand to take a break from those, including things like for most Christian Sabbatarians, that would mean going to the store or going to a movie or something like that. You take a break from all of those things, and you fill the day with public and private worship and rest. That's how they would define that. And they take it really seriously. There's a, a guy I'm friends with who's a Sabbatarian on Facebook, and he said this uh, earlier this week. He said, we don't have much business talking about revival, ending abortion, reviving biblical evangelism, ending racism, or much else until we get a view of the Christian Sabbath. Shots fired. Okay. <laughs> we know where he stands, right? So that day for the Christian Sabbatarian is to be treated in a unique way as the law commands. They would look to the law and see the Christian Sabbath there. A second view is the Lord's Day view. Where Sunday is a special day, it's the Lord's Day, it's special, but it is not a Sabbath. So the day is special, but it is not a Sabbath day, okay? That's the general definition of what that means. People who hold to this view will start by saying, look, we're not under the law. The Sabbath was given in the law, and the Sabbath is not commanded in the New Testament. Interestingly, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And do you know which one is not repeated? The Sabbath day. So that's, you know, where, kind of where they start is they say, look, we're not under the law anymore and the Sabbath isn't taught in the New Testament as something that Christians should keep. So you don't have to turn to these verses. They're going to be on the screen. I want to kind of walk you through how a person arrives at this position from Scripture. So, the first part is recognizing that Sunday is a special day. Matthew 26, 17. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to, or where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Okay? The first day, first day, it's important. John 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, and while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. First day of the week, resurrection. That's an important day, right? 
the most important day in all of world history? Acts 20, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Look at the early church. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, etc., etc. The first part is what's in view here. The first day of the week the church was gathered. First day. And then 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul wrote to this church and said, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. They're getting together and giving their offerings the first day of the week. There's a pattern established in the New Testament of people gathering, Christians gathering as a church on the first day. Sunday. If you don't know your calendar, it's Sunday. Okay. Um, now, so Sunday's a special day, but is it a Sabbath? Let me give you a couple passages for this. Romans 14. Romans 14, 5. Listen to what Paul wrote about this. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In Romans 14, this conversation, well, it's not a conversation. Uh, it's just Paul writing. Paul's talking about these things that we disagree on as Christians. He uses food as an example. Some people are vegetarians, God bless their souls. And other people are the elect and eat meat. <laughs> He's saying the opposite of that. Uh, he's saying, look, there are some people that will eat this and not eat that, and, and you guys just need to live with each other in harmony, have peace, show grace, don't cause each other to stumble. And into that conversation, isn't it amazing, he inserts a conversation about days. One Christian will hold one day up and say, this is a special day. And other Christians will hold no days up and say they're all alike. But have peace with one another. Show grace. That doesn't make one a Christian and the other not. Just relax and don't cause each other to stumble. But getting even more specific, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here it's saying, let no one judge you for your view of the Sabbath day. That's Scripture's clearest teaching for Christians. Let no one judge you about your view on it. And then it goes on to say in verse 17 that the Sabbath is a shadow of what is to come. And that's this Lord's Day view. It says, look, Sunday is special, but Jesus is the capital S forever Sabbath. So it's in Jesus that we have the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The, the actual day that you recognize on the Jewish calendar each week, that was just a shadow. And now we have the substance. And so that's faded away and we have Jesus. That's the Lord's Day view. A lot more freedom in this view than in the former view, though Sunday is still recognized as a special day. You can't get around that in the New Testament. Jesus rose on the first day, the church met on the first day. That's the pattern. But then there's yet a third view, Don Whitney describes, the oblivious view. And we'll spend the least amount of time on this one. That view just says, well, everybody goes to church on Sunday. That's just what we do. And that's it. <laughs> Those are usually the people who squeal their tires on the way out because they're ready to get home because they paid their dues, right? Sunday, it's just, that's what we do. We, we go to church and then we get out of there. So that's the oblivious view, the Christian Sabbath view, the Lord's Day view, and the oblivious view. 
I hold to the Lord's Day view, and I think Tom Schreiner does a really good job summarizing this. So I'm going to read you a paragraph from one of his books. He says, Believers are not obligated to observe the Sabbath. There's a statement for you. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant and the Sabbath as the covenant sign are no longer applicable now that the new covenant of Jesus Christ has come. Believers are called upon to honor and respect those who think the Sabbath is still mandatory for believers. But if one argues that the Sabbath is required for salvation, such a teaching is contrary to the gospel and should be resisted forcefully. It is wise, naturally, for believers to rest, and hence, one does not specify... Or no, sorry, I skipped a line. Is wise naturally for believers to rest, and hence one principle that could be derived from the Sabbath is that believers should regularly rest. But the New Testament does not specify when that rest should take place, nor does it set forth a period of time when that rest should occur. I think that's a very balanced statement and has the backing of the Word of God. So is Sunday special? Yes. But is Sunday a Sabbath? No. And perhaps it might help you in your mind to make a connection. I view the Sabbath in the same way that I view tithing. Tithing was given for, to Israel. They had multiple tithes that they had to observe. And they had specific times and places and things to bring and how to do it. That is what a tithe was. In the New Testament, there's no command to tithe. But do you see a principle of giving in the New Testament? Well, you certainly do, yes. But we have freedom in Christ. We're, no long, we're not under the old covenant. We're in a new covenant. And is the principle there in the new covenant to give, just like there's a principle to rest and enjoy rest in Christ? Yes. But the Sabbath and the tithe was part of the old covenant. And in the new covenant, God doesn't just drop those things and erase those things, but He gives us freedom because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Hopefully that helps a little bit. And if you disagree, then tell Mark. So, how then shall we live? I, want to, I don't want to give you any directives on how to live as a believer who enjoys rest in Christ, but I do want to give you some just thoughts and ideas and spur you on to really getting true, genuine rest for your bodies. We've been talking about the soul, we've been talking about the calendar, but you've got to take care of your body. You're a steward of your body, and we need to talk about rest. But first, let me give you a summary of what, we just, what I just said there. If you are a believer you have entered an eternal Sabbath. Amen? And if you're a human being, you need rest. <laughs> the most tired person said amen. Good. And Sunday, which is the Lord's day, is a great day to especially recognize both of those truths. Sunday, the Lord's day, is a great day to recognize that we have an eternal Sabbath in Jesus and we need rest. Okay? So let's talk about that a little bit. I'm just going to throw out a bunch of tips and ideas and thoughts, and you just do with them whatever you want. This is clearly no longer the thus saith the Lord section of the sermon. Okay, um, So the first thing that I want to encourage you to do when it comes to rest in this life as a Christian is prioritize corporate worship. Prioritize corporate worship. You know, a lot of people call what we're doing church. And it is a church service, okay? We are a church, 
<laughs> and human beings, not this building, but the human beings of redeemed souls here that God has put together. We are a church. We're not really doing church. You don't really go to church. But what you do is you come together collectively as a local expression of the body of Christ and you worship. We, we're worshiping right now. You don't have a worship section in a, in a church. You don't go to church and do worship and then listen to a sermon. That's all messed up vocabulary-wise. But you, as individual members of a church, come together to collectively worship through music, through uh, the teaching of the Word of God, through all of our conversations. It's all worship, okay? And so prioritize this time as a believer. There is no excuse to break the pattern that we have from the early church of gathering on the first day of the week. There's no excuse for breaking that pattern, for seeing that believers in Christ who are committed to Him and committed to one another come together and fellowship regularly, weekly. Lord's Day rest includes gathering together. Second thing I want you to know is that rest is a spiritual issue. Rest is a spiritual issue. And you will face spiritual battles in this life with rest. Last week, I talked about how one of the most common bad views of rest that we have is that it's a non-spiritual thing. It's just, well, we all do it. You go to sleep, you wake up, and God doesn't care. No one cares. We just do it. No, it's a spiritual exercise. Every day, rest is. And it's a battle. God will see fit to allow you to engage in spiritual battle with rest. And some of you have been fighting and you haven't even known it. So you've really been losing. <laughs> you have to fight in this battle. You know, here Melissa and I are getting ready to go on a sabbatical, one month long sabbatical. And yesterday, so many things went wrong. Yesterday afternoon, we found out that there was water in the window well that came into the basement. That was shortly before we found ants upstairs which was shortly before the fireworks started going off and didn't stop until 11 o'clock and I'm trying to sleep. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And you have to fight. Thirdly, sleeping is a good thing and you should do it. <laughs> sleeping is good and you should do it. You need to give your mind and your body a break. Both your mind and your body need sleep. And catching up on uh, Sunday isn't a bad idea. Here recently, Melissa and I bought some new pillows. And Melissa was looking at the page on Amazon, and they're kind of pricey. And she's the frugal one, so her instinct is, why would we spend that much money on something so small, you know? And I'm not the frugal one. And uh, it's like, oh, well, I don't care. There's a price on those pages? I just buy things. I didn't even know. Um, and so, uh, as, but as we're talking about it, think how much we sleep in our lives. Investing in your sleep's a good thing. If you need a new mattress, get a new mattress. If you need nice pillows, get nice pillows. We talked about last week, 30% of your life is spent sleeping. 30%. If you're going to get a nice car that you spend 2 to 4% of your life in, or 1 to 3%, whatever it is, why not get a nice bed? 
for 30% of your life, okay? Just consider that for your own well-being and maybe the people you live with. Um, just get, get a nice situation so you can get good sleep. A couple of quotes on this from guys that you probably know. This is a story about John Piper. It said, John Piper once sat wearily on the side of his bed trying to develop a theology of sleep. After all, he reasoned, we could do so much more for God's kingdom if we didn't have to sleep nearly a third of our lives away. Eventually, John concluded, quote, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. That's a good one. That's the theology of sleep you need. D.A. Carson says this, and some of you really need to listen to this. He said, if you are among those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to try to get the sleep you need. We are whole, complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is to get a good night's sleep. Not to pray all night, but to sleep. Spiritual discipline obligates you to get the sleep your body needs. Some of you need to hear that. <clears throat> so that's, there are a few tips, a few more. Uh, recently, I was in a conversation with Travis about beard balm. You remember this? We were talking about beard balm and uh, said something about using it every day. And I said, well, six days a week. Do you remember why I said my beard balm six days a week? There you go. Very good. You remembered. Yeah. I, I just hold to a principle in my life. You shouldn't do anything seven days a week. <laughs> now, I break that rule sometimes, but um, addiction fights rest. And if you're addicted to something, whether that's like something that's slid into your routine or whatever it may be, if you're addicted to something, that just fights rest. It's something that you have to do. You have to keep doing it, and you're a slave to whatever that thing is. And so perhaps there are things in your life that are seven-day-a-week things that need to be six- or five-day-a-week things. Beard balm is totally just a goofy illustration, okay? So uh, now you all know that I use balm on my beard. Um, another thought. When you rest, seek to feed your soul. Seek to feed your soul when you rest, not just to chase down some idea of what you think rest should be, and not to be lazy, there's a difference between laziness and rest. Laziness is a sin, but rest isn't a sin. It's good to get rest. And I can't help but just be struck by the irony on holiday weekends like this, when you got the big, the big motor home with the trailer and stuff and, and all the toys, and everyone's doing it on the weekend, so you're fighting all this traffic, and you know the people driving the motorhome are just like, oh, why are there so many people on the road? And then you get to the campsite, and there are other people there, and you're all just squeezed in, and ah, there are too many people out here, and you just need to get away and get some space, all in the name of rest. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Uh, you need to feed your soul, not chase down and fight for some idea of what you think rest should be. Consider your relationship with electronics. This is said over and over again. There's no shortage of good resources on this from a Christian worldview. But think about where your eyes go. 
Did you know that eyes were not just made for looking at things, but eyes were made for looking into? And there are lots of people out there who don't like to look in other people's eyes. They'd much rather look at a screen. But you get rest by experiencing your humanity the way God designed you to experience it. You get refreshed by being with people and looking into people's eyes and having conversation. And that brain that God gave you, that's for thinking. There's something profound. That's for thinking. And the more and more you get absorbed with toys that glow and make fun noises, the chances are you're thinking less and less. Eyes are for looking into, brains are for thinking. How about that? Here's an idea on Sundays. Schedule margin this first day of the week. Schedule margin in your life the first day of that week, and I'll explain that. Um, it's Even though we don't believe that the Sabbath day is binding on believers, and I shouldn't say we, maybe some of you do, even though I don't, I certainly believe that there are principles when we look in the law and see what they did on the Sabbath day, there are principles there that we would do well to imitate. We would do well to draw out uh, what God had given that, that people, Israel, and to see how we can apply some of those things in our own life. And a lot of that had to do with getting away from your daily routine. So, when I say schedule margin, I'm talking about getting freedom from routine so that you have freedom for godly priorities. Sunday, so many people don't work on Sundays. There's a great opportunity to get away from the daily go, 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 and to have those godly priorities at the forefront as far as family time, to have more family time than normal, and to read good books, and to go be with other people, and to come together and sing songs, and to do those things. You want to schedule that margin. And I also would want to encourage you also, since we do get together on Sunday, that you would keep your schedule open so that there would be days when you could spontaneously go with people here or there and be with people on a Sunday. Fellowship, it's a godly priority, and the Lord's Day is a great time to have that margin in your schedule. And then finally, a good thing to think about on the Lord's Day and as we get rest throughout the week is to breathe and eat right. Now, when we talk about breathing right, you might think, I, I've really just flown over the cuckoo's nest or something, right? That I told Melissa I should hand out yoga mats at the door today when I talk about this, but uh, no, br- breathing right isn't, if we're not talking about crossing our legs and, you know, doing mantras and stuff. But did you know that a lot of us just don't breathe right? That there are exercises ha- online that teach you how to breathe right? And do you know that that brain, that gray matter between your ears needs oxygen? and that your body needs oxygen, and that if you're not breathing right, you can be depriving your body from getting what it needs, and that you could actually be more relaxed if you weren't as tense from not breathing right? Something to think about. And eating right. Sunday's not a day to, you know, hey, it's the weekend. Let's just, you know, trash our bodies. In fact, any day should not probably not be a day like that. Um, you should always have wisdom in those things. And so you want to eat right, too, and be healthy. Don't you want to be strong for the Lord? Think through that. Treat yourself on Sundays, but don't trash your body. That's a bad thing. A couple of quotes here. Peter Scazzaro says, A day of rest is God giving His people a snow day once a week. If you can remember back in school getting a snow day. Sorry, homeschoolers, you can't relate. 
David Murray says, A day of rest is a gift, not a threat. It's a time for healing the body and the mind. It's a gift. It's a gift. And for you Christians who have come to know God's rest through Jesus, through the gospel, really focus on your physical rest too. The Lord's Day is a great time to catch up on rest and to do a lot of those things that uh, I was throwing out there as ideas. But whatever the case may be for you, whatever is right for you, think about it. Think through it, that you would be holy in your, in your spirit and uh, with your physical body, that you would be devoted to the Lord and rest for His glory. And that it wouldn't just be something that you fit in if you have time here and there, but it would be intentional and that it would, it would honor Him and what you're doing. Okay? Any of you tired? <laughs> well, um, Melissa and I are going to be on our way uh, after this service, on our way out, and we'll be back in a few weeks. And we'll miss all of you dearly. Um, trust that the, the Lord will just do great things in your month of July and that you will continue to grow in grace. Why don't I pray for that before we sing our final song? Father, again, we are thankful. We thank you that you've created us to honor you. It's the greatest privilege is to serve the King. And God, teach us how we can do this better, how we can do it um, in a way that uh, really is reflective of the gospel message, that it would be a testimony to those around us that we have this rest in Jesus. Give us faith as we rest. It still is a symbol of trust. Give us the faith that we need to rest for your glory and to do it well. I ask that you would give my family rest in the coming weeks, that you give us safety as we travel, and for this church that uh, you would continue to uh, just do awesome things this month and that uh, the people here would continue to grow, that you would cause us all as we come into the fall months and we get closer to that graduation date, that we would all go into that um, running strong, that it wouldn't be a crawling across the finish line sort of feeling, but that we would um, be united and joyful and at peace as a congregation and that we would uh, seek to build one another up as we see the day approaching. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on the rest of this day, your day, a special day, the day that Jesus rose. We ask it all in his name. Amen.